0: Right, I hate, I hate coming up here and having to break up the fellowship because that's what the church is, right? It's the fellowship. And that's what we're going to hear about this morning in today's message. Um, we're actually in the series that, uh, that you may believe. And it's John chapter 13, and we're going to be starting in verse 18. And the title of this teaching is Fellowship and Love at Supper. You know, we're getting ready to have our potluck, potluck dinner and fellowship at those events are so important. And the fellowship at this Last Supper that we're looking at was very discerning for Jesus. Jesus was aware of the selfish ambitions of Judas and his betrayal. And he also knew how Peter was going to be very impulsive and he knew his weakness and that would lead to his denial of who he was. But Jesus through all of this does one thing. He continues to communicate his love to them through all of this. And that's the message for us as well. No matter what we do, Christ's love never changes for us. That he loves us all the more. Now, fellowship is not blind. It is very discerning. And Jesus loved them through all this. Even though he knew what was going to happen, he still loved them. Why? Because Jesus had the liberty to love. Because he came from God. He was God. In John 13, 3, it says this. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under His power and that He had come from God and was returning to God. He had all the power and the authority of God, and He had the liberty to love like God. And this is such a beautiful illustration for us today as we get into this Scripture. This account in Scripture is just showing Jesus' constant love For each and every one of us. So if you have your Bibles. We're going to be in John chapter 13 verse 18. If you'll join me. And it says this. I am not referring to all of you. I know those I have chosen. But this is to fulfill this passage of scripture. He who shares my bread. Has turned against me. Now this is interesting. Because Jesus says. I know the ones I've chosen. That first eye is very emphatic because he knows the character of these 12 men, each and every one of them, just like he knows who we are. And it was interesting, he chose them to be his representatives. They were representatives of Christ, just like us. What a privilege it is to be an ambassador for Christ. And that's what these men were. But now this circle kind of draws in a little bit. It comes in to the cleansed ones. Those who have accepted Jesus as their Lord and their Savior. And I say Lord first because he is our Lord. But they accepted him to the fullest sense of who he was. But there was one there. There was a traitor that was in disguise. But Jesus says, I know who that is. And here he means evidently to say that he hasn't chosen them all, but he has chosen the 11, implying that Judas had not been chosen by him. And what he means here, he's referring to the purity of his heart. And Jesus implies, though, Judas had been picked for the office or the role of being an apostle, but his heart was not purified and it was not clean. And he knew that. But here's the thing. Judas was protected by Jesus. I believe he was protected by Jesus because Jesus had never openly revealed who he was. He never said that. And I think there was a reason for that because if the other 11 knew what was going on, they probably would have done something, right? Peter's in the room, right? We all know Peter. What happened when the soldiers came to get Peter? They cut off the ear. Very impulsive, So Jesus was protecting him by not saying anything, but now the time had come because Judas will betray Jesus. And Jesus is quoting from Psalm 41.9 when he says this, Even my close friend, someone I trusted, one who shared my bread, has turned against me. This references to David's betrayal of a man named Haithophel. I hate to feel, if you remember the story when David's son Absalom launched a rebellion against him, this man was one of David's key advisors and he defected and joined Absalom against him and he broke bread with him and he ate and he turned against him and this just crushed David, it crushed him. And what happened to David is gonna be a picture of what we see happens to Jesus. Jesus will be betrayed by the one Who eats the bread with him, by a man that traveled alongside of him, who did life with him, who was sat under his teachings, who saw his miracles. And I believe he was one of the ones that Jesus washed his feet. And I can only imagine that when Jesus came to Judas, that our Lord was especially tender with him. And he says to him, Judas. I know you've changed, but I haven't. My love for you has never changed. And that's the same message for us today. Jesus' love for us never changes, no matter where our hearts are, because Judas' heart was not in the right place at all. Now, Ahithophel, this was a picture of what would happen to Judas also, because Judas would go out and hang himself as well because of his sin and his guilt. And Jesus said this because he was telling this so it would fulfill scripture. There was the prophecy about this so it would be completed. The point is, is that Jesus, Jesus' love says there's still a way and time for us to repent. There's always time for us to repent. So repent while we still have time. Jesus always gives us that time to repent. And in verse 19, it says, "I'm telling you this now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am who I am." Jesus or Judas was exposed to the same spiritual teachings and the privileges of others. But they did not do him any good. His heart was hardened. Basically, he was an impostor. He was trying to fool people. Do we ever see that in the church? Do we ever see people that are trying to fool us that are not who they say that they are? They sit under the teachings just like Judas. The thing about that is it's the same sun that hardens the clay that melts the snow. The next point, God knows the innermost thoughts of our hearts. God knows where our heart is. Whether it is soft or it's hard, God knows that. And in verse 20, it says, Very truly, I tell you, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me, and whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. And Jesus is very, just saying very truly that if you accept me, you accept God, and then you will accept the ones that I send. And Jesus knows exactly what's about to happen. He's getting ready to send these apostles out to spread the good news. He's sending them out to tell people about the love of Christ so that they can hear and receive the good news. And in verse 21, it says, after this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified. Very truly, I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. Now, Jesus was troubled in spirit. And the word in the Greek means toroso. And this means to be troubled. It means to be shaken up where something is not calm and it's not still. And this troubled spirit that Jesus has this reference to shows us who our Lord was. It's a reference to his human spirit and who he was. Once more, the reality of Christ's human nature was brought before us. As we know, Jesus was fully man, but he was also fully God. And he was showing who he was at this point, his nature, to be troubled, to be caused to be agitated and stirred up inside. Let me ask you this. Have you ever been agitated like that? Have you ever been stirred up so much that your spirit is troubled, that you can't relax? I think this is one of the strongest expressions used on how Jesus was feeling at this time. Because he was troubled. And I believe he was troubled for about the events that were getting ready to take place. Jesus' troubled spirit, what does that mean? We've heard of people that have a quiet spirit, right? They have a quiet spirit, which means that they're calm inside and that they're centered, that nothing is rattling them. They're very calm. They're calm with what's happening around them and calm with what the world is. But we've also heard people with a mean spirit. Anybody ever heard that? Do you guys know anybody with a mean spirit? I think we all do, right? But there's also a gentle spirit. There's a kind spirit and so on. There are different kinds. But a troubled spirit is the opposite of a quiet spirit. And it's referring to that inner state, that disturbance that's happening within Jesus and it agitates him and it stirs him up so much that what Jesus was experienced though was because of the betrayer that was among him and it's given him no peace at this time and I think that shows that he knew his heart that his heart wasn't changed and the sin and I think that that sin in our lives as well when Jesus there's an unbeliever it bothers him he has no peace because he came so that we would have peace so that we could all be saved. And he had known this for a long time with Judas. In John 6, 70 it says that he knew that. But at this point, this inner disturbance became more than he could take. Because Jesus knows what it means to be troubled by sadness and evil. He knows the pain of unbelief and betrayal. And he's getting ready to know what death is about. Jesus knows. He can relate to to each and every one of us when it comes to sadness and evil in our lives. Our Lord had often spoke about his own suffering and his death, and he didn't have this troubled spirit at that time. He had said, my hour had not come. He talked about it freely and openly with his disciples. But for some reason, and we know what that was, it was because of Jews, he was very perturbed. He was upset with what was getting ready to happen, this treachery, this desertion. And this feeling of distress penetrated from his body to his soul, then to his innermost spirit. That's how troubled he was. It was almost like the presence of this person couldn't be tolerated anymore. And he had to do something about it. And I also believe that the troubled soul that he had this irritation that was in his spirit came from the unknowns of the cross you know jesus knew that he was going there for one reason it was for god's glory to save the world but what would it be like for jesus to come in contact with sin for the first time to take the sins of the world onto him for the first time remember jesus was sinless And he didn't know what it was like to have that sin. He knew what sin was. But he didn't know what it would be like to be separated from his father. Separated from his deity. And to die a spiritual death because of that sin. To be completely and utterly alone for the first time. And how long would that be? Now, of course, he was Jesus. He knew that. But the sins of mankind are the grief of our Lord. The sins of of mankind are the grief of our Lord. Mankind's deeds are evil, the love of darkness rather than light. Do you ever feel this way? Have you ever felt that way that sin had bothered you so much and the thought of being separated from God had bothered you so much that your spirit was troubled and moved? On the inside. In verse 22, it says, His disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which one of them he meant. He explains that there was one in their midst who needed more than their feet washed. He was saying somebody needs a total scrub down. You Need to probably go through like the car wash, right? You need to be completely scrubbed from the top to the bottom. But there was no indication that that anyone knew who it was, not even Judas. No one pointed a finger at Judas. No one was saying anything. They were actually looking at themselves. They were saying, is it I? But Jesus knew who it was. They suspected themselves before they suspected Judas. And the point, I'd like to read Matthew twenty six twenty two. It says, they were very sad and began to say to him, one after another, surely you don't mean me, Lord. The point I'd like to make is this. We need to look at our own heart and our motives before we look at someone else. So many times we're also looking at someone else's heart and judging them. I use the word judge, but we're looking at their heart and their motives. We should be looking at our heart and our motives of where we are. And in verse 23, it says, One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him, Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, ask him which one he means. So here he is, here's Peter. Doesn't want to do it himself, right? I'm gonna hey, come over and ask him. But what they're doing is it's customary. They're reclining at this table, probably one arm back and the other arm they're eating. But it's fascinating to me that John calls himself the one that Jesus loves. I like that. Because remember, you had the 12 down to 3, And now we're down to one. It's down to John. And we all know Jesus loves each and every one of us, doesn't he? We all know that. And how do we know that? Because of these famous words. It comes from a child's song that we've probably sung in Sunday school, right? And if you know it, sing it with me, right? Jesus loves me, for this I know, for the Bible tells me so. God's word tells us that he loves us. But I can tell you one thing. When I think about John, I think a little bit about me as I've gotten a little bit older and I've grown closer to God. As I've grown closer to God, I love him more and more each and every day because I got to know who he was. I got to experience who he was. And I love him more and more. And then I think about me. And I'm like if I know you this way, then I know that you probably know me this way. And I think about my worst days on how unlovable that I am. How unlovable I can be. And Cindy is here this morning, so she can tell you, at times, I can be unlovable. I think we all can be unlovable on our worst days. And I think that the fact that Jesus loves me as much as he does is amazing to me. And I think that this might be what John is saying here when he says that he's the one that Jesus loves because he's saying, Jesus has seen me on my worst day. He's seen me at my best, or as we know, my worst. And he still loves me. He was amazed at that, and he was putting that down. I think that through his amazement with that, that he writes that, that he's the disciple that Jesus loves. And we can all say out of amazement, knowing who we are at times with that emphasis on unlovable, that I am the disciple that Jesus loves. Each and every one of us can say that, that we are that disciple that Jesus loves. No matter how unlovable we can be, He loves us so much. And in verse 25, it says, leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Whatever your question, the best place to get an answer is from Jesus himself. Wouldn't you think? The best place is right there. It sounds really good. So here he is. He's leaning on Jesus' chest a little bit. He's close to Jesus' heart. And when we have a relationship with Jesus like that, and we know the closeness of his heart, And we're at his table. That's where John was, at his table. He was close to him. And when we have that closeness and we experience God at that point, and we have that communion at his table, I have found that I hear the heart of God at his table better than I have in any place else. When we have that relationship with God and we're close to him and we're communing with him, we hear the words of God. The voice of God in our life. And in verse twenty six it says, Jesus answered, It is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then dipping the piece of bread he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Isgarit. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered it into him. Now John was no doubt stunned about this revelation. But John describes these next moments very clear and in detail for us. Because Jesus didn't change anything that was going on. Jesus didn't change the fact that he loved them. He loved them even more. No matter what the circumstances were going on, he never stopped loving them. And the same is with us today. No matter what our circumstances are, Jesus continues to love us no matter what we do. He always loves us. And it's important for us to note that Judas was not a true believer. Judas was not a true believer. In John 6, 64, it says this, Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which one of them did not believe and who would betray him. And John was probably at the right of Jesus at the table and Judas was probably at the left And this is a customary place of honor. And Judas was in that customary place of honor because Jesus loved him so much. Jesus was showing Judas that he loved him, even though his heart was hardened towards him. He was giving him a place of honor at his table, still offering Judas a chance to repent, to soften his heart to come to our Lord. There's always time to come to our Lord but Jesus gave him this honor. He wanted to cleanse him of his sins, and he wanted to sit with him, but Judas was not clean. He had not been bathed all over. In John 13, 10 through 11, it says, Jesus answered, those who have had a bath only need to have their feet washed. Their whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you, for he knew who was going to betray him, and that Was why he said not everyone was clean. The point I like to make here is how close a person can come to salvation and still be lost forever. We can come close to salvation, we can get to know who Jesus is, but if we don't have a relationship with him and receive him and believe who he says he is, we'll be lost forever. Even though Satan had entered Judas, it was Jesus who was still in charge of what was going on. And he knew his father's will and what he wanted to do to fulfill it because it was written in the word. So then Jesus says, Jesus told him, what you are about to do, do it quickly. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what he needed for the festival or to give something to the poor as soon as judas had taken the bread he went out and it was night so john writes that jesus had sent him away quickly judas left the room immediately and he knew what was going to happen judas had already set up what was going on he was a deliberate setup he had already was going to Send him to the Jewish leaders. He already was going to betray them for pieces of silver. He knew what was going on. But then John adds, It was night. And I think this is kind of a sinister note that he says, It was night. But these details are there for a purpose for us. This wasn't put there by accident by any means, because the impact that we have when we read the gospels, that we see that light and darkness are important spiritual markers for each one of us. They are very important. And I think that the darkness was a symbolic for what was in Judas's soul, what his heart was. He was the one that was going to turn his back on the light of the world. And he would perform this evil deed of treachery against him. Jesus is the light of the world, but Judas rejected that light. Rejecting to receive the light of the world, Jesus, will put us in darkness for eternity, each and every one of us. If we don't receive Jesus as the light of the world and have our hearts softened and receive him, we'll be in darkness for eternity. And then in verse 31, it says this, when he was gone, Jesus said, now the son of man is glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the son in himself and will glorify him at once. Now the theme of this room changes right the theme changes i think that there was the heaviness had dropped off the room have you ever felt that where the room kind of changes the heaviness was gone and the theme changed to the glory of god they're getting ready to do the last supper now that judas was gone remember because communion is for believers and judas was gone so now that this uneasiness was gone jesus mentions the glory of god 5 times He mentions this glory, and the fact that Jesus was anticipating the cross as his glory proves that the redemption of the world through his coming death was his highest glory and his mission here on earth. You know, for us, from a human standpoint, the death of Christ is very terrible, right? It was a suffering that was unspeakable. It was betrayal. It was humiliation. It was beatings, a crown of thorns. It was very bad, but from the divine aspect, this is a revelation of God and his will being done to save a lost and dying world. At this hour, Jesus had two concerns on his mind, to fulfill the word of God and to magnify God's glory. That was what he was doing. His words that God shall also glorify in him and himself expressed his total confidence in God and his identification in who he was in, Christ, in God. So what does it mean for us to glorify God? What does it mean for us to glorify the Father? Well, Jesus tells us in this prayer in John 17, 4, he says it like this. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work of You have gave me to do. This is the way we glorify God, by faithfully doing what he has called us to do, by spreading the good news. You know, you see our mission statement up here. It says, we exist to glorify God by being a loving community where people are saved, set free, discipled, empowered, and sent out to fulfill their God-given calling. That's how we glorify God. Our mission statement is the church. We're called to glorify God to do that. You know, Judas was out in the darkness and he was controlled by Satan. But Jesus was in the light sharing the love and the truth with his disciples. What a contrast between the light and the darkness, between love and truth. And that's what we're called to do. We are called to glorify God by continuing that mission, by spreading the good news telling people about the love of Christ, being that light on the hill, that people see that bright, shining light in us. And then in verse 33, it says this. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I've told the Jews, so I will tell you where I'm going, you cannot come. And Jesus was still looking at his disciples as children, and he looks at us today as children, doesn't he? And I'm glad he does, because I need that father. I need that father in my life. But just like children, we need direction, just like they did. They needed direction. And Jesus is saying to them, right now, you can't follow me. You can't go where I'm going to go. Later, you can. Remember, he told the Jews on two separate occasions that they would seek him, but they wouldn't be able to follow him, and they wouldn't be able to find him. And the reason was, is they were unbelievers. But he's not saying that to the disciples because they believed in him. And the disciples would be able to find him and they would be able to follow him. The disciples would follow him and they would see him again. But it's important that when Jesus tells us not to do something, that we obey him. We obey our Lord. When he says, don't do this, we don't do it. And I don't think that Peter should have followed him. And we'll see how that works for Peter here in a minute. In verse 34, it says, A new commandment I give you, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciple if you love one another. You know, in his farewell message to his disciples, he gives them this new farewell command. A command he says, I give you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. On the surface, this seems a little bit, different, right? Because we've heard this before, haven't we? In the Old Testament. Didn't it talk about that in the Old Testament? Doesn't it say in the Old Testament we're called to love our neighbors ourselves? So we know that, right? That God is saying that he is the God of love. We've been learning that in Exodus, that he is. He's a God full of compassion. He's long-suffering. Slow to anger, we know that. But what does this new command mean? But Jesus adds this new dimension to it. He says, as I have loved you. And how did Jesus love us? For one, love is not a warm feeling. It's an attitude. It's an attitude that we have. It reveals itself in our actions, just like with Jesus. So how can we love others as Jesus loves us? When it's not convenient for us. When things aren't convenient for us, we're about what about giving until it hurts? In devoting our energy to others' welfare and their concerns over ours. By showing compassion, trying to take off that pain that they're feeling without complaining or pushing back. That's not an easy one, is it? But that's what it is. There's no greater love than to lay your life down for a friend, right? Meeting their needs. This is hard to do, isn't it? It's hard to love like that, but when we're empowered by the supernatural, the Holy Spirit, that's how we do it. That's how we love like God does. God loved us, right? He loved us so much that he sent his son to die for each and every one of us so that we could spend eternity with him, And how did Jesus love us? In Ephesians 5.25, it says this, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Jesus' love, opening himself to the extent of death. And if we're to love others as Jesus loves us, we will open ourselves up to others to meet their needs, whatever the cost is. And then this becomes the proof That we are disciples, a real expression of love that reflects Jesus' love for each and every one of us. It's not by our words, it's not by our doctrine or our traditions or where we go to church, it's in how we live and how we love. Does it cost us anything? Do you see people bickering? Do you see jealousy within the church? Do you see division within the church? People see that, or do they see the love of Christ in the church? when we love each other sacrificially. It's not just loving in general. You know, it's easy to love people that we like, isn't it? It's easy to love our family. Sometimes it's not. But most of the time it is. But what about the unlovable? What about the unlovable? You know, you say, well, you know, Pastor Craig, I really like what you're saying about loving everybody, but what about this person? They are so mean and they are so nasty to me. They are constantly doing these things to me all the time. They have hurt me to the point where I can't forgive them. I don't even like them. How am I going to love them? These people are around us, aren't they? Well, when I think about that, I think about Jesus on the cross. I think about Jesus on the cross and the way that he loved. And if we're going to love like Jesus does, we need to pray and act like him. And in Luke 23, 34, it says this. When Jesus was on the cross, he said, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. You know, this is a lost and dying world. And when people do things to us and they are mean to us, It's okay because they don't know what they're doing. They're lost. They're sheep without a shepherd. They have no compassion. And we love them unconditionally at any cost. Because Jesus, when he came into Jerusalem, he saw the sheep and he said, they are sheep that are lost and helpless that do not have a shepherd. And he had compassion on them just like he has compassion on us. And that's the way we should live our lives with compassion and love, sacrificial love to other people. And the Holy Spirit will give us that power within us to do that. And the world will recognize that. By this kind of love, men shall know who we are. We're disciples of Christ. When we love like Jesus and we love to the point of death. That sacrificial love. In verse 36, Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I am going, you cannot follow, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. That's Peter, isn't it? Peter's great, proudly saying, Lord, I'm ready to die for you. I'm ready right now. And we know that from reading the Gospels, Jesus likes to tell parables. So he kind of just eludes around it a little bit. Instead of telling him the truth, he kind of goes around it and he says, Jesus replied, where I'm going, you cannot follow, but you will follow later. And Peter's question for clarity leads to the fact that he was willing to die for Jesus. And sometime in our enthusiasm, we make promises to God, don't we? How many of us have made that promise? Lord, if you just do this, I won't do this again, right? We've all done it. We've all done those things. It comes out of pride sometimes. Lord, if you do this, I won't do this. But God knows the extent of our commitment. Just like Jesus knows now what his extent, what Peter's commitment is to him. And Paul knew it as well. And Paul writes in Romans 12, 3, For by grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought to, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with your faith God has distributed to each one of you. Instead of boasting, demonstrate your commitment to the Lord. Step by step, each and every day, as you grow in the knowledge of who He is and in God's worth, and you increase your faith daily. It's a great question for all of us today. Are we willing to die for Jesus? Are we really willing to die for Jesus? Are we willing to love like Jesus did other people. There's no doubt that Peter's sincerity at the moment was there. But he should have listened to Jesus and not followed him. Now Jesus also talks to him. Now he gives him this warning. Jesus knew his weaknesses. He knew that his faith would be weak. And he makes this statement. Jesus says this in verse 38. Jesus Jesus answered, you will really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. John doesn't mention it here, but we're reminded that in Luke, Jesus told Peter this, in Luke twenty-two thirty-one, 31, it says this, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. In spite of the fact that sometimes we can be like Peter, And our faith fails us. That we don't fully understand exactly why our faith is often shaky and weak at times. But we can take courage and truth in the fact that Jesus never gives up on us. And he always loves us just like he did Peter. Peter would fail Jesus. In fact, all of them would just like we probably have done ourselves. We've all failed Jesus, but they needed to pull together just like us in unity as the body of Christ. The last point is the only thing that would bring them together would be their love for Christ and each other. Unity and love with Christ brings us together to love like Jesus loved us. Sacrificially, love unconditional. Such love will not only bring the unbelievers to know who Christ is through that, but it will also keep the believers strong and united in a world that doesn't know Jesus, that doesn't know our God. Jesus is a living example of God's love, and we are a living example of the love of Jesus, each and every one of us. It's a beautiful picture that we see how Jesus loves All of us. And he says in chapter 14, he goes on after telling Peter that he's going to deny him three times. But he shows where his heart is. He says this, let's not your hearts be troubled. And that's where we're at today. Hearts shouldn't be troubled. Jesus loves us no matter what's going on around us. And some of you may not know that love of Christ. You may not have received Jesus in your life. And today I want to give you that opportunity. I want you to receive that love, that unconditional love that he has for each and every one of us. So at this time, I just want you to bow your head. And if you haven't received Jesus, if you don't know what that love is, if you don't know what it is to be sitting close to him, next to his heart, at his table, and you want that, I just want you to raise your hand now. This is between you and God. Yes, thank you. God knows. God loves you, each and every one of us. So if you raise your hand, I want you to pray this prayer with me. Father, I know I'm a sinner. And I believe that you died for me on the cross. And I repent of my sins. And I will follow you all the days of my life. I know that you rose from the dead to defeat the grave. And I will follow you faithfully and obediently I make you my Lord and my Savior today. Thank you for your undying, unfaithful and undying love for me. That you have been faithful all my days, even though I haven't been faithful to you. Thank you for loving me. Pray all this in Jesus' name, Amen. amen.